Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 22. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Beethoven's Symphony No. 2 in D major, opus 36. Although Beethoven had worked on his second symphony on and off for some time, he probably made his finishing touches to it in 1802, while still staying in Halgenstadt and before moving back to Vienna. The famous Testament had been written in October, and as I've mentioned before, certainly appeared to show him deep in despondency. But the year had nevertheless been a very productive one for Beethoven. His letters written around that period show him taking care of business in his normal fashion, and there is little about the D major symphony that suggests that the composer was somehow lost in gloomy thought. Beethoven had wished to have the work performed earlier, perhaps in April 1802, but his preferred venue was not available, and the Symphony No. 2 was not presented to the public until 1803, where it competed for attention with Beethoven's first symphony and two other premieres, his Piano Concerto No. 3 in C minor and his Oratorio, Christ on the Mount of Olives, both of which we'll look at in future episodes. Beethoven, in his second symphonic outing, took a somewhat different approach than in his first. It is true that some conservative critics had found fault with various aspects of his first symphony, but it had, on the whole, been firmly grounded in the late 18th century tradition. But with an increased sense of confidence due to his ever-growing reputation, it might be reasonable to suspect that Beethoven here might break boldly with the conventions of the 18th century symphonic style. Some of his piano sonatas to this point have shown signs of an almost remarkable originality of approach. Would his second symphony do the same? At first glance, that does not seem to be the case for Symphony No. 2. For the first movement in D major, 3-4 time, and initially marked Adagio Molto, Beethoven provides a fairly long introduction that seems rather Haydn-esque. It's diverse and maybe a little diffuse, touching on at least three ideas, different moods, and several keys without really developing any. We begin with a bold stroke, a two-note fortissimo motive consisting of a 30-second note upbeat leading to the tonic note of D, heard in unison and octaves throughout the orchestra. After that, the composer employs three distinctive thematic ideas in the introduction. The first is broken into two motives. After a fortissimo fermata on the tonic, the melody, initially doubled in sixths by the oboes, begins softly on the third scale degree, descends, and then undulates gently before ending on a dominant chord. This is answered by a second motive in the flutes, clarinets, and bassoons, based on a descending scale line of dotted eighths and sixteenth notes. It all comes to a secure stop on a D major tonic triad. These two motives continue to dominate for the next seven measures, although they do morph somewhat in the process. The dotted eighth sixteenth scale line is much more aggressive dynamically and is now ascending and eventually add some triplets into the mix. And the first motive is inverted more often than not. Here are the first 12 bars.
you may have noticed that things were not quite so simple, harmonically speaking, as we moved beyond the opening five measures and the strings entered the picture. Almost immediately, the tonality becomes in doubt. Beethoven injects diminished chords, which add a hint of tension and briefly seem to direct us toward different keys. Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard that opening gesture again, that 30-second note pickup leading to the bold assertion of the tonic. But the fact is, it's a different tonic this time. We're now in B-flat major, after a little harmonic sleight of hand, and we've come to the second section of the introduction. I'm not going to try to break down this second section into motives. There are a number of swirling 30-second note scale lines traded back and forth in the strings and woodwinds, which tend to swallow up the new four-note motives the winds later introduce. This section begins in B-flat major, but soon enough we're ensconced in D minor. So here's the second section, beginning with that plunge into B-flat major, and ending with a dramatic descending dotted rhythm figure in D minor. The final section of the introduction is more tonally stable. In fact, it basically consists of a long dominant pedal on A, although some diminished chords over the pedal and reoccurring accented chords lend a little short-term tension, or at least uncertainty. A few new but short-lived motives are placed over the top. One is a series of undulating staccato triplets in the strings, and another is a short little four-note motive in the flutes featuring a trill. Here is the shorter, final section of the introduction. After this fairly complex and sometimes noisy introduction, the first theme seems very simple, and that's at least part of the point. 
The contrast with what's come before is so sharp that the simplicity comes as a welcome relief. It is also a theme which Donald Tovey characterizes as an example of complacent formalism, the idea being that the theme is so completely generic, it has almost nothing about it that would strike the early 19th century listener as at all distinctive or personal. It begins, after a tempo change to Allegro con brio, with an ascending D major triad played in octaves by cellos and violas, unfolding rather slowly, basically one note to the bar, joined by a little stepwise link in sixteenth notes on beat four, which delivers us from one triadic step to the next. Then, after ascending the triad, it simply comes right back down again, a bit more quickly this time, and featuring staccato markings. Here's a simplified example. That more formidable flourish you heard in the first violins, in measure four, serves to introduce the same idea, but now presented on the fourth scale degree, outlining a subdominant chord, or the chord built on the fourth scale degree. By the end of my example, Beethoven already seems to be breaking away from D major, or at least hinting at it, with chromatic chords that appear very briefly to be tilting us to different keys. But he's not really ready to modulate yet, so before we know it, we're back securely in D major, after crescendoing up to a solid cadence back on the tonic chord. Let's hear that much in an actual performance. Of course, composers have been known to do great things with similarly simple ideas, and these are just the opening measures of the exposition. Do more striking or singular ideas lie ahead? We know that in the typical sonata form, the first theme or subject is presented in the tonic key, but sooner or later normally gives way, at least in a major key movement, to the key of the dominant, which would be A major here in a transitional passage. We expect it to happen, so the question is, how is Beethoven going to accomplish it? In this case, he begins by restating the first two bars of the opening theme, but then begins to play with it, or at least elements of it. In this case, the little sixteenth note link and the swirling sixteenth notes in the first violins. He doesn't change keys right away. It's a somewhat gradual process. But the first clear evidence that he's eager to leave D major behind comes when, unexpectedly, he inserts a G minor chord, which obviously doesn't have much to do with the original key of D major. But it does relate closely to the key of D minor, and before we know it, he reintroduces a bit of the first theme in D minor, causing that theme, for a few seconds anyway, to sound much more intense. But that's not his real goal, of course. 
He really wants to go to A major, the key of the dominant, and he gets closer to his goal by way of a clever chromatic chord known as a Neapolitan sixth chord. It's built on the flat second scale degree, and it turns us quickly and unexpectedly in the direction of A minor. At that point, he introduces the first really new thematic idea in the transition, in A minor. It's a very busy one, starting with a half note played in octaves by first and second violins, and then proceeding in a series of gradually descending staccato eighth notes, bolstered a bit by the flutes and other woodwinds. We stay in A minor up until the very last minute, when just a couple of bars before the second subject is introduced, the key is transformed to A major. Here's the transition, starting right after the first subject and ending right before the introduction of the second subject. The second subject in the normal key of the dominant, A major, is a particularly interesting one. It's a march with jaunty dotted rhythms and staccato repeated notes. And like the first theme, it's based largely on an arpeggiated tonic chord. After the first eight bars are completed, a new version of that statement starts up, now reorchestrated with the violins playing trill-like figures in the background once again ending on the dominant. Although stirring and noble, not the least because of its triumphant scoring, it still has a bit of that tongue-in-cheek quality, summoning up comparisons by Tavi and others to Figaro's aria, which sends Carabino marching off to war in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. I made a similar comparison in connection with the movement from Beethoven's Violin Sonata, Opus 30, Number 2, in a previous episode, but this particular match is rather more impressive. By the way, it appears that Beethoven may have had marches on his mind to some extent in this period. In October of 1803, he offered to his publishers three marches for piano four hands, along with two other works designed to please talented amateurs, the variations on God Save the King and Rule Britannia. All of these were designed for the amateur marketplace, which Beethoven did decidedly not disdain. Here's a brief glimpse of one of those marches, a march in C major, eventually published as part of Opus 45.
It's a robust work which guarantees that both pianists get to make some noise and have some fun, but as you might expect, it lacks the distinctive character that his first subject march exhibits in Movement One of the Second Symphony. Okay, back to our march. After an emphatic cadence on the dominant of A major, we're introduced to a new theme. Sometimes it's referred to as the second part of the second subject, sometimes as a closing subject. Since it has so little to do with the march-like second subject, I tend toward the latter label. At any rate, it's really just a one-measure motive which descends sequentially, starting in the lower strings, and is briefly treated canonically. Here's a simplified example of that motive. This idea, just slightly reminiscent of the second main motivic idea in the introduction, may be repetitive, but it actually exudes quite a bit of energy with its accented first note, and soon enough, when the upper winds come in in imitation, we hear sforzando accents on both beats one and three. As the idea is repeated and picks up momentum, it would be easy to imagine that we were heading for the end of the exposition after perhaps a brief codetta. But that's not what happens. After eight bars of the repeated motive, Beethoven returns to an earlier idea, from the slow introduction, as a matter of fact, that initial fortissimo combination of a very short pickup note followed by a powerful sustained note. It's written here as a 16th note going to a half note, and in the introduction, as a 32nd note going to a quarter note. But of course, at that point, the tempo was a much slower adagio molto, so the overall effect is rather similar. But that's not the only old idea he reintroduces, and this next one, occurring in an unexpected little episode, is more surprising. The texture and the dynamics are reduced dramatically, and we encounter a motive which is basically an extraction of a motive from the first subject, that sixteenth note link on beat four that connected the notes of the ascending triad. But here it's operating as an independent agent, and is repeated several times, each time moving up by step and crescendoing. Grove makes the point that this passage in particular must have seemed a little mystifying to the early audiences. Okay, it's time to hear how all this fits together in an actual performance. This excerpt will begin just after the second subject march theme and extend through the episode I just described. After this little episode, sort of an aside on Beethoven's part, but not an irrelevant one, we might expect to encounter a nice, brief, tuneful little codetta theme that would take us to the final cadence on the dominant and the end of the exposition. 
But that's not quite what happens. Even though we just encountered an important cadence on A, the key of the dominant, Beethoven is not actually quite ready to move on from the 16th note linking idea he'd just been toying with. He continues it for a couple of measures more, but then cuts it off with another dramatic stroke, a fortissimo descending arpeggio on a D minor chord. The linking motive then picks up again, but this time in D minor. From that point to the end of the exposition, we are awash in dramatic gestures, rapid fluctuations in dynamics, and offbeat accents as Beethoven pounds the dominant chord into our musical consciousness. Of course, the repeat at the end of the exposition sends us back to the beginning of the Allegro con Brio section, as you heard at the end of my excerpt. But we'll move on to the development section. And it's a powerful one, which begins by reintroducing the first subject in D minor, and then, after a clever modulation, moves to G minor and introduces a variant of it, which pairs the first measure of the first subject with, in the second measure, an ascending line followed by a flow of staccato eighth notes in a pattern which begins by moving an octave higher and then comes down step by step. Here's a simplified version showing this variant as it is first heard in the cellos. This passes directly to a new thematic idea, not a very long one, really only a couple of measures, which is treated canonically. Even when the imitation comes to an end, the 16th note link from the first subject still dominates the action. Here's a little of that passage. The second subject is not completely neglected in the development section. After the development of the 16th note linking motive from the first subject quiets, the second subject is brought back in G major. It dominates briefly, especially bars 3 and 4 of the subject, which are quickly detached from the first two. A new triplet motive is soon added, alternating with the varied restatement of bars 3 and 4, and even the opening motive of the introduction, that bold assertion of the tonic note I referred to earlier. It also plays an important role as we hurtle toward the recapitulation. Here's the part of the development section where the second subject is introduced in G major and then developed in various forms as we continue to modulate. 
there is also something of a new idea introduced, a trumpet call motive, combining quarter notes with dotted eighths and sixteenths, introduced in F-sharp minor. It is somewhat reminiscent of the march-like second subject, of course, but it does have a very strong personality all its own, even though it only appears on the scene for eight measures as the development section begins to draw to a close. Here is the conclusion of the development section, beginning with the introduction and development of the second subject and continuing on to the beginning of the recapitulation. I'm not going to play any excerpts from the recapitulation, although Tavi has said of it, and the movement as a whole, that its brilliance and energy were quite unprecedented in the orchestral music of the time. There is a fair amount of condensation of material in the recapitulation, especially of the first subject. It follows the standard operating procedures in terms of keys for the most part, although there are, of course, brief forays away from the tonic key from time to time. The coda does introduce some exciting new leaping motives, but proceeds to the final cadence in a mostly orthodox manner. And so we are going to move on to the next movement, a gracious larghetto in 3-8 and A major. Grove refers to its elegant, indolent beauty, and Tavi says of it that it is one of the most luxurious slow movements in the world. It's in something of a slow movement sonata form, but we're going to look only at the main thematic materials. The first theme unfolds in two parts. The opening melody, which is mostly harmonized in block chords by the lower strings, starts on the fifth scale degree, and in the first two bars, moves up the tonic triad from there with a connecting step between the top two notes. It peaks on a C-sharp after a brief trill, and then, in the next measure, continues to move up the tonic triad, before coming down by step in the fourth measure. The next four bars begin again at the high point of the melody, and gradually work their way back down to the original starting point. It's very simple, but projects an almost ethereal purity. It's harmonized mostly by tonic and dominant chords, although a descending chromatic contramelody in the lower strings in the third bar add a touch of sentiment. The next eight measures present a varied repetition of the first eight, with clarinets and bassoons taking over the melody and accompanying block chord harmonies from the violins, and with violins one and two assuming a broken chord accompaniment pattern. 
The second part of the first subject is similar in some respects, but adds a more yearning quality with its repeated use of accented nonharmonic tones, which resolve upwards. At the varied repeat, with the woodwinds again assuming the melody, the first and second violins provide a restrained but very effective new countermelody. Since the overall form here is much like that of a sonata form in many respects, there follows a transition clearly modeled on the first subject, which takes us to the key of the dominant E major for the second subject. Although it is not a direct flight, and there are some hints of tension along the way. If the second subject seems just a little familiar, it may be because its opening motive in the first violin somewhat resembles one heard in the second to last measure of the second part of the first subject. Here is the first part of the second subject. It features a meandering descent from its initial melodic high point. The second four bars accomplish much the same thing in a much more lavishly ornamented version. The second part of the second subject is quite different and presents an interesting textural effect where a repeated motive in the first violins acts almost as a pedal while the lower strings take a similar pattern and move it up step by step beneath it. Earlier, I referred to the ethereal quality of the first subject, and the Codetta theme is equally charming, if a bit more pedestrian. But this movement is too lengthy to sustain a single mood, or even a series of similar moods, without introducing a little contrast. And as we move through the development section, Beethoven briefly casts the first subject material in a slightly more ominous light. Here's a little bit of that.
But as you could hear, the clouds eventually dissipate and the sunshine breaks through. A hint of that same ominous quality reappears briefly in connection with the development of the second theme. But once again, the gloom is dispelled as we return gently to the first theme in the recapitulation. But we are going to move on now to a very distinctive and quite compelling scherzo. It's in 3-4, back in D major, and marked allegro. The first part of the scherzo consists mainly of noisy octaves alternating with quieter staccato three-note scale fragments, sometimes harmonized, both ascending and descending, which pop up first in one instrument and then another alternating with dramatic plunges of more than an octave. It's hardly a theme at all in the conventional sense, but it's wonderfully explosive. Here's the first 16-bar section. The longer second part of the scherzo is typical in that it first presents a somewhat contrasting new idea and then comes back later with a repeat of the first theme. It's different in that here it doesn't just recapitulate that idea, but actually develops it a fair amount. I refer to the second part of the scherzo as having introduced a contrasting new idea but it doesn't seem that contrasting initially. The first four bars give us more of the three-note staccato scale fragments and descending plunges. But the key is different. We start out in D minor, but just a couple of measures later, after an offbeat accent that gives us something of a jolt, we find ourselves in B-flat major, and a very contrasting idea is introduced in this new key featuring first violins in a swirl of scale lines, later joined by the flutes, over what amounts to a pedal B-flat in cellos and double basses. Over that pedal, the melody alternately suggests tonic and dominant seventh chords, but the B-flat in the pedal keeps us anchored, or does it? After 12 bars, the first violins introduce a new motivic idea, a repeated run of eighth notes climaxing on a staccato quarter note, while the B-flat in the lower strings starts to descend. After some clever chromatic chords of the secondary dominant type, it becomes clear that we're back in D minor, and that B-flat pedal now seems more like a holding action than the tonic note in a new key. But of course, all of this happens very quickly and soon we're back in D major, and the first part of the scherzo returns. Although this time it doesn't just return, it continues into a short development section, which even features a little modulation. Here's the second part of the scherzo without repeat.
The scherzo section is so dynamic that it wouldn't be surprising if the trio section was somewhat less so. And it is quieter and more thinly scored, initially, the first section given over to the woodwinds and horns. The second, longer section of the trio begins forte in a much more robust manner on a reiterated F-sharp major chord in what appears to be an extended build-up to a new thematic idea, probably in B minor given the extent of the build-up of the dominant chord in that key. But there is really no new idea on the horizon, and eventually the repeated F-sharps fade away. At that point, the theme from the first half of the trio is reintroduced, back in D major, the big modulation to B minor having never materialized. It begins quietly again in the woodwinds and horns, and then is handed to the strings, still abetted by the horns, with some pizzicato contributions from the lower strings. Both sections of the orchestra then combine for a final eight measures for a miniature development of the final two measures of the theme with fluctuating dynamics. After that second section of the trio is repeated, we naturally go back and repeat the entire scherzo section. It's a remarkably good-humored movement, even for a scherzo, but it actually pales somewhat next to the even more remarkable final movement in D major, cut time, and marked Allegro Molto. I've mentioned before that Beethoven authorities always find it interesting to speculate as to just when the composer passes from his first period into his second period. No small number of those commentators are fond of citing this movement, the finale to the second symphony, as exactly that pivotal moment. This is largely, I think, because of the unique nature of the theme. It begins forte, with a quick half-step scoop up to G, the fourth scale degree, in multiple octaves, which is quickly followed by a dramatic drop of an octave and a half to a growling trill figure, and then finishes with another drop, this time a fifth down to the dominant note. These first two measures are so remarkable that they have provoked many commentators to speculate that Beethoven is representing musically some organic function, a hiccup, a sneeze, a burp, or something more vulgar. Beethoven's sense of humor is likely to have embraced all of these possibilities. By the way, this plunging motive is, as you may recall, in good company in this symphony. The closing section in the first movement featured some worthy examples, and of course the scherzo we just heard also featured a number of dramatic drops in its melodic activity. So this first part of the first theme may in fact be part of a joke 
but it is not an arbitrary gesture given what has come before in the symphony. The striking opening measures are followed in the first violins by an unlikely series of quiet eighth-note arpeggios, the first two notes slurred, the top notes in the arpeggio presented staccato, with the same articulation pattern intact as the phrase finishes by descending down the scale before closing on the dominant, all this presented against flowing half-note chords in the lower strings. The opening six bars are then repeated with the dramatic descending leap figure now kicked up to fortissimo. Here are the first 12 bars, ending on the tonic of D major. The strings now introduce a new idea in staccato quarter notes. There's not much to it, and since it seems to be directing us to the key of the dominant, it's easy to get the impression that it's the beginning of a modulatory transition. Above it, the flutes, oboes, and bassoons continue to reference the opening two-note motive that began the movement. Still, the whole passage does have a transitional feel about it, and it comes as a little bit of a surprise when a few measures later, we hear a solid cadence on the tonic of D major, showing that Beethoven is not yet really interested in modulating. The overall form of this movement is usually described as a sonata rondo, suggesting that the first theme or refrain will return on a regular basis, but there will be contrasting episodes in between and something of a development section at some point. What we are introduced to now really sounds as if it could be the first episode. It's actually an impressive melody with a touch of nobility about it. But it is not the first episode, strictly speaking, because we haven't actually left the original tonic key yet. So we'll call it merely a transitional theme, its substantial merits notwithstanding, because it does soon enough lead into a passage which does clearly modulate to A major, the key of the dominant. Here is that transitional theme and the modulatory passage that follows it. Once we have actually arrived at the first episode, in A major, we encounter an expansive theme, consisting initially of a descending triad, starting on the fifth scale degree, unfolding slowly in the woodwinds, mostly in overlapping phrases between clarinet, bassoon, and oboe, against staccato quarter note accompaniment in the strings, which blossoms into an eighth note flourish at the end of each phrase. The second four-bar phrase is handed to the oboe and bassoon as a duet, and, while beginning even more expansively, those two eventually echo the opening motive in shorter note values. When the bassoon takes over the primary control of the melody, 
we switched to A minor, with the flute soon following suit. The melody closes on the dominant, and we then return to A major for a retransition section, played by the full orchestra, taking us back to the original refrain theme. The last few bars of that retransition are especially notable for a little duet between first and second violins, both toying with the opening two-note motive of the movement against an exposed bassoon accompaniment pattern. Here's an excerpt starting with the first episode, following it until it segues into the retransition, and then the refrain's return and beyond. As you could hear, that was no simple return of the refrain melody. Almost immediately, it turned into a rather formidable development section, which is, in places, not just somber, but positively stark. The sort of development section that it would have been hard to imagine when first listening to the rollicking refrain theme. The refrain theme does return as high-spirited as ever. In fact, it comes back just a few seconds after my cutoff point for the last excerpt. I'm not going to play it again, or the varied return of the first episode. Instead, I'm going to jump to the substantial coda, actually a few measures before the coda, where we're in the original tonic of D major, but after holding onto an inverted dominant seventh in that key, we experience another of the many and often unexpected shifts, this time in regard to key, as we suddenly go from D major to F sharp major, with no attempt whatsoever at a smooth transition, although both tonic chords do include the note F sharp, and that is something of a link in itself. 
you'll hear that initial two-note ascending half-step motive bandied around again, sometimes gingerly, sometimes very aggressively, along with more explosive outbursts after a quieter passage. We're going to let Sir George Grove have the last word about this symphony. The finale puzzled everybody. It was so harsh, wild, bizarre, and capricious. It was this oddity in the finale, this want of decorum, rather than any obscurity rising from depth of thought, and the difficulty felt by the performers in mastering the technique of the entire work, which is always spoken of as extraordinarily hard to play. These were the two main complaints in the notices of the early performances. We may be thankful that we now feel neither of these drawbacks, and that our only sentiment is amusement at the humor and personality of the music, delight at its grace, and astonishment at its energy and fire. That's all for this episode. In the next, we'll look at Beethoven's oratorio, Christ on the Mount of Olives.